Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. May it please our God to make the most of this purity which was acquired by our Lord Jesus Christ until we have arrived in His kingdom, where we will be freed from all corruption of our vices. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to the mid-1500s to listen to a sermon by John Calvin preached in Geneva to carry on our, our Easter tradition. Right, Troy? How long have we been doing... The Easter Calvin sermons. I, every year we have put a, a, one of John Calvin's Passion of the Christ sermons. Uh, he has eight of them, and he kind of, pre- from what I can tell, he preached them over a week that led into Easter. They're all really, really good. Uh, it, it, I really enjoy them because you can sometimes listen to, and I think this happens to all Christians, you can hear the gospel, the passion story, and sometimes, become, okay, I kind of know this story. I feel like I've heard it. Uh, and it can be easy for you to go, okay, what what is there new or different? And I, I think that John Calvin just does such an amazing job of just kind of highlighting the story in a way that every time I get one of these sermons, I look at it and go, I didn't look at it that way before. I hadn't thought about it that. That really hits me in a new way. Uh, and we've heard that from people who have listened to this show. And it's not, you know, Arminians, Calvinists, at, uh, in between everyone all over the place. You know, regardless of what your thoughts on maybe John Calvin, the man is, uh, we've had a lot of really great feedback on these sermons on Jesus Christ being really powerful. Now, they are out of order. The first year we released uh, Sermon 7, and then we followed with <laughs> Sermon 8. And then we went back to Sermon 6 last year, and now we're on Sermon 5. So I'm not saying this is coming in order. You might have to jump around as you find your way through it. But I do encourage you, if you enjoy this episode, go listen to the other ones. They are all really, really powerful. Yeah, and my understanding is that these were preached like leading up, like like a week-long yeah. thing leading up to Easter. Is that right? That's the way it was. I, I think it was like Sunday and then but every single day right into like it would have the way he did it. He preached uh, seven days a week and then he would take a week off and some, you know, one of his elders would preach and then he preached, in a, you know, kind of like that. Uh, and he was leading Bible studies. John Calvin, we've, we've talked about him uh, quite a bit in other episodes. He was a very, very busy guy. And so the way I know that these the way I know it is not like this was eight weeks leading up to the Passion of Christ. It was like every day mm-hmm. he was turning out one of these sermons. And then I'm pretty sure he did two on the Sunday of Easter itself. So it's a very powerful uh, set of sermons. And again, I, I really think you can get a lot from it. And it, it really just from start to finish every time I'm like, man, how how is next year going to top this one? And every year I'm like, oh, that was great. I really it really <laughs> needed to hear it. Yeah, leave it to us to take a a. a a week's worth of sermons and stretch it out over seven years. <laughs> I know. I, I, I literally am like, what do, we, what do we do when we get to the end? Like, I mean, four years from now, we're going <laughs> hey, to be out we're, of the If we're Christ still sermon. going after eight uh, years, <laughs> I think I think we'll we'll figure it out. We'll be all right. We'll find a longer series. We'll <laughs> find another one for him to start. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay, uh, John Calvin, give me 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to do a recap for anyone that doesn't know who John Calvin is or uh, maybe forgot. He was born in France in 1509. He grew up originally with a dad that wanted him to become a priest, but after a plague came through their area, his dad changed his mind and said, hey, why don't you go to Paris to study to become a lawyer? That'll probably do us a little bit better as a family. But his dad died shortly after that, and so his opinion on Calvin's career uh, didn't play in as much, didn't affect his life as much. And he began to explore the Reformation. Again, this is early 1500s. And so 
uh, that that's consuming the world, you know, as far as what's going on, what's in the zeitgeist, what's in uh, affecting people's worldviews, what's this Reformation thing all about? And soon he was converted. But at that time, France was persecuting all of those who were not with the Catholic Church. And so Calvin had to flee. He eventually arrived in Geneva. And his plan was only just to stay there for the night as, you know, he was kind of moving through that area, staying in this small town, Geneva. But the main man that was in charge there, and this is a wild story that we cover in, in previous episodes, but uh, he was this fiery preacher that was in charge of the city. And he said that Calvin would be cursed if he left. And he said this because he wanted him to stay so much. He was convinced that uh, John Calvin was sent there to run the city. And in a, you know, maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but uh, Calvin stayed. And over time, uh, he would make Geneva one of the homes of the Reformation. Now, Calvin is not without his controversies. Uh, he had a run-in with Michael Servetus, which is famous. And, well, we've talked about that one on other episodes. Uh, and people have their contentions with how he ran Geneva and Calvinism is a subject that there doesn't seem to be a neutral on it. You're either for or against it, and there's no in-between. However, I always try to remember that Calvin was up against a gigantic institution that had modeled life for a thousand years in Europe, the Catholic Church at the time. Uh, they told people how to marry. They told people, you know, what, what do you do with your kids after they're born? They were this very powerful thing. And when Calvin and these guys moved into Geneva, they had to kind of change everything. And it was like taking the computer and just resetting it. And I don't know if computers still do this. Anymore. I don't think they do. But back when you were maybe you're older like me, you remember you'd have to sometimes reset your computer and like get rid of everything and start over. Uh, and if you're old enough to remember doing something like that with a phone or a computer, uh, that's kind of what calvin and them were doing they're like let's do a reset in geneva we're starting from scratch and if we're going to do everything again what would it look like if the bible and not old church traditions were our guide uh, and that meant they were tackling everything and that meant including things like marriage and family in geneva celibacy and monasticism monasticism was over the idea that you would be a monk and you would not get married uh was it was done. You couldn't do that in Geneva. And if you're living today, that's not really a big deal. Uh, we probably, you probably, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching you. You probably don't even know any monks, right? Like you probably don't have some of those living in your neighborhood. Now, actually, I live on a side of the world where monks are not completely uncommon. And when I lived in Cambodia, you'd actually see them pretty regularly. Uh, but Christian monks, right? You, you don't see those anymore. But back in the day in Europe, that was a common side. It was extremely common. Uh, and if you weren't seeing nun monks, you'd probably be seeing nuns. And if you had a daughter and you couldn't provide for her, or she was acting up, maybe she was being bad, maybe she was bringing some shame to the family, you put her in the nunnery, you got her, got her taken care of, and she's a nun, she's out of your way. That was a really, really common practice all over Europe. And when they did the factory reset on Geneva, well, that was one of the first things they said, like, no, in our city, you get married, you have families, you don't have to, but we're expecting uh, that you will. And our elders are going to be married and have a wife. And that's not going to be a big deal. Yeah. And when you think of weddings, you know, in today's era, you, you think of this public affair, right? It's, it's a it's a big ceremony. Lots of friends and family come. There's, you know, a pastor, an officiator of some type there. Uh, it is a big party. And uh, weddings in Catholic Europe were not like this usually. I mean, you could have parties and get-togethers, but one of the issues that Luther raised about the Catholic Church and one of uh, the big corruptions that was in Catholic society in that in that uh, system was the idea that 
you could pay the Catholic Church to recognize a marriage, and you could pay the Catholic Church to recognize a divorce. So in Catholic Europe, you you can marry someone just by making a promise to them. Uh, and of course, you'd you'd pay the Catholic Church as well to recognize that as a marriage. Uh, very convenient, you know, if you're especially two young people. And you know, the church also makes money on recognizing divorces as well. So when that uh, quote unquote marriage, you know, eventually doesn't work out, the church will also make money on uh, that situation. So uh, again, different than what we see as a as a biblical marriage. Different as what we see as far as how John Calvin wanted to recognize families in Geneva. So in Geneva, uh, marriage was a public ordeal. It was a vow you made in front of loved ones, in front of God, in front of the elders of the city in in front of Geneva. And the elders of the city would help oversee the wedding, help encourage marriages, uh, and almost, you know, in a marriage counseling way, encourage people to to be careful, to think through, you know, who you want to marry, go through a thoughtful process. They did also oversee divorces. They didn't approve of divorces, but uh, from an institutional perspective, and they saw it as allowable, I guess, you know, is how I would phrase that, uh, to divorce in, you know, specific instances like abuse or adultery. In these instances, they would they would sometimes seek to counsel people back together if they could, but um, they understood there were circumstances that, that were too far. And not just their view of family and the marriage, since they also had views on how to raise the children. Uh, they had institutions that were set up to take care of kids who didn't have parents. They saw that, the, hey, it's a bad pro- thing when there's nobody there to look out for them. They put together ways to care for those children who did not have family, you know, taking care of orphans and widows, as James reminds us. Uh, or families who maybe had no pro- husband that could work for, you know, different reasons, too. They also set up schools so that all the kids could learn to read the Bible and scriptures for themselves, as well as theology, where all children had to be catechized, which is, I mean, they had to learn those basic uh, theological answers to different things. And there's a whole system in place for how to do that. Now, this may all seem to you and maybe to me like Geneva's way too in your business. If you're like many of us, the, the government and the church is getting way into how you raise your family. And you might not like the government and church prying so much, but for the people of Europe at the time, this was seen as a huge improvement. Marriage and weddings were being taken seriously. They weren't just children, you know, young people making a promise in a barn somewhere, and now suddenly they're married and you have to pay to divorce them or something like that. This is being taken care of seriously. Uh, Children are likewise getting educated. And remember, this is uh, coming out of the medieval era of, of, of Europe, children were not treated with respect and care, and not everyone was getting educated back in those days. But in Geneva, under these ideas, they should be, and they were seeing to it that, hey, we're going to make sure these kids are getting that schooling, getting that education. It doesn't matter if you're uh, just, you know, the, the 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 son of a peasant, you know, that it's okay. We still want you to be able to answer the basic questions of your faith. You're equal uh, to us in that way as a prince. And we're, we're as duty-bound duty to take care of you as we are anyone else. Now, an episode that talks as much about what marriage and family life was like in this city uh, that John Calvin was running, wouldn't it make sense if we didn't also talk about, well, what was Calvin's marriage life? Like, uh, you know, we find out sometimes that these guys have, uh, not good marriages, right? We can think of some people that we've talked about throughout church history who their marriage, their family life, uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is John Wesley, but there were plenty of others uh, who they had really rough family lives. Uh, what, what, what do we find out here? Is John Calvin's one of the good ones or the bad ones? 
Yeah, and it took him a while. Calvin was not married young. Uh, he was open to marriage, but, you know, he, he just wasn't coming across the right woman, right? And there was lots of people that played matchmaker in his life. None of them really panned out for the longest time. He always found problems with them. And, you know, I got to be honest. I actually really you. liked this what? story it, because it, you you have, like, people like Melanchthon. He was, they, all the guys were kind of, like, ribbing on Calvin, like, hey, you should get married. Hey, you should get married. And we really want you to get married, you know? And then, like... Uh, he went to a conference and all day Calvin was like not really mentally present. And at the end, Melanchthon was like, oh, I think somebody's been thinking about that marriage he wants to get into kind of a thing. Like, eh. like it just felt like a bunch of fun guys sure. ribbing each other. And yet these are like the people that we look up to as scholars and all that stuff. But they're giving John Calvin a hard time on dating. It's just I don't know why that just made me laugh. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, from what I with limited knowledge I know about Calvin. If I was a woman, man, I yeah, I don't I don't know. He do, he does not seem you, like you the wouldn't type be lining up. You, you, no, <laughs> he seems like a pretty hard person to maybe be in a lifelong commitment oh. to. But uh, but he did eventually find a, a woman who uh, he fell in love well, with. And to be fair, it wasn't it wasn't Calvin. You know, it wasn't the ladies were having a hard time getting to marry. That's him. true. It was him. He he kept finding problems. It was you yeah. Know, he kept, oh, that one. Well, I think too that's what that I think that's this. what makes him seem insufferable when he is he's. he's <laughs> <laughs> no, you will not work as a wife. Reminds me of uh, of Emperor Cusco from a new group, an Emperor's new group. Oh a boy, that is not the image I wanted my head as John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had a I had a di- very different image of of John. It's more regal and yeah. probably literary. Yeah. <laughs> Man, my two-year-old is having a blast somewhere else in the house. I don't know what he's doing, but he is he is having a good time. Okay, uh, Edelette is how I pronounce her name in my head. Is that how you pronounce it, Troy? I'm going to say, I thought it was Idolette, but let me actually, let me just take a little minute to note. Um, we have wonderful, amazing listeners. You guys are awesome. You leave comments, and we, we really are grateful we wouldn't be able to do the show without you. You know I'm saying all this because I'm about to make a comment. If you tell us that we mispronounced the name, Mm. After the episode is already out, mm-hmm. we can't we can't do anything about yeah. it. We can't correct it. Okay, we're going through names all over we're the world on. all the time and languages that are 500 years old. And uh, every once in a while, I get like a comment on YouTube or something where the, it won't say anything other than uh, that name's actually lost audience or something like that. And I'm like, I mean, okay, thank you. The episode's already out. Like, we can't go back now. We, we we've moved on. Um, so if you're if you're wondering if we mispronounced Idolette here and you, you want to let us know, you can. Idolette. We welcome feedback, Idolette? but we, we can't Idolette. fix the episode after this point. It's a pretty name. Either way, Idolette, Idolette. I, I kinda I kinda dig it. It's a it's a pretty it's name. It's a nice name. Yeah. Uh and you know, in the future, if that name comes up again, we'll try to pronounce it better the next time. You know, it's not just like <laughs> we'll just ignore your advice altogether, but uh, yeah, if it comes up again, we'll, if, we will yeah, take it. And into we've talked about it, but if if we had to issue corrections for every time that we mispronounce something, <laughs> there wouldn't be any revived thoughts left. It would this just would be, be called revived corrections. Yeah, it would just be an hour long reel of of us issuing <laughs> corrections on name pronunciations. Edelette, I'm going to call her Edelette, was the love of his life, and they fell madly in love, and they got married. Uh, and it does seem like, in many ways, it was the the ideal marriage. And it was also something that he he did see the importance of. It wasn't just him getting married because his friends were telling him he needs to get married. And, you know, he he genuinely understood the family dynamic. And, uh, you know, he did feel an obligation to that. And he wanted he wanted to yeah experience and partake in the joys and the benefits of being in a family.
Calvin had a good marriage to Edelette. They had to spend a lot of time apart due to ministry, especially that first year. Uh, but he would write loving, caring, kind letters back and forth. Uh, he would say of her that she was the best companion one could have in life. Uh, they had some challenges. First year, I believe they had to spend 32 weeks apart, uh, which, I mean, imagine your first year of marriage. That's not the year you want to spend 32 weeks apart. But due to all the traveling he had to do, you know, helping run the Reformation, he was not able to be at home with her as much. And then another difficulty was they ha- he had left Geneva for a time, comes back to Geneva. And that first year in Geneva was very tough. And during that time, Edelette gave birth to a son who was born, stillborn. And when the delivery happened, you know, even though that the, the one side of it, obviously terrible, was the stillborn son. But the other side of it was she had nearly died giving birth to him. And she became very, very sick for a while afterwards. And that was a really just a hard time for them as they tried to, you know, is she going to die? What's going to happen? The, the grief of losing that child they thought they were going to have. And then they would have three children who ended up not None of the, none of them making it really past that first year or two, uh, where they all died very very young. And at the time, this is horrible, but it was true. The Catholics used this as uh, something to make fun of and spread rumors about them, and they said it's a sign of God's judgment on them. You can't have children, and so this is uh, you know God's punishment for you leaving the church and in, in disobeying us. And just imagine how difficult it would be to go through that, lose your children, never having any actual children uh, between the two of you. Uh, and then on top of that, your enemies are putting out pamphlets and stuff saying, this is God's judgment on you. I mean, that would just, I think, be really crushing to you. On top of that, they had a very busy marriage. Uh, they were, during that time while he was running Geneva, a huge group of Waldensians who were under persecution showed up hundreds of people. He had to help find places for them to live. Uh, jobs for them, all that stuff. There were constant political battles going on. So many things they were doing in Geneva. And yet John and Idolette were able to have a good relationship. And they said, hey, you know, it's the grace of God. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have what we have right now. Now, Idolette eventually died, not as old as I think Calvin would have liked. And he would spend the last 15 years of his life without a wife uh, because she died younger due to disease. And when she died, Calvin wrote this letter uh, in a friend about the grief he was feeling. He said, I do what I can that I may not altogether be completely consumed with grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life. She was the faithful helper of my ministry. My friends leave nothing undone to lighten the load in some degree and the sorrow of my soul. May the Lord Jesus confirm you by his spirit and may me also under this great affliction, which certainly would have crushed me had not he whose office it is to raise up the bowed low, to strengthen the weak and to revive the faint, extended help to me from heaven. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast... The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? 
for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Matthew 27. We have already seen by the preceding verses that our Lord Jesus offered himself of his own will as a sacrifice to make reparation for all our iniquities. Through his own obedience, he was willing to be condemned to wipe out our sins. That is why it is said he did not answer any of the accusations that were raised against him. He had enough understanding and wisdom to answer, but he was silent. It is also mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. This was not only to show his patience, but in order to gain for us true freedom as those who are righteous and innocent before God, knowing that God has received us in mercy and that all our faults are abolished by the perfection which was found in our Lord Jesus Christ, that, then, is how the Son of God acquired for us the freedom to be able to glory boldly that we are the children of God. That is why he offered no reply to those who accused him. It showed his integrity. Now, if you were present, you might at first find it strange that he is in chains and yet says that he is king of the Jews, for these things seem contradictory. But John proceeds and says that he declared that his kingdom was not of this world, and then he declared also that he was the Son of God. He even protested that he had come into the world to maintain the truth. But all this comes together easily, for our Lord Jesus surely had to declare himself to be king of the Jews unless he wished to reject the prophecies about himself. He also had to be declared Son of God. But that did not lead to his absolution. It did keep them from having a long, drawn-out trial. It was for this he was condemned. Let us note well, when the silence of Jesus Christ is mentioned, it was when he did not wish to offer any excuse. As for his person, he kept his mouth closed. However, this did not stop him from making a confession when he had to make one. That is also why Paul says that he made a good confession before Pontius Pilate, 1 Timothy 6. For if it had been a matter of Jesus Christ defending himself well, the judge was already persuaded of his integrity. He could then easily have won his case by speaking against the Pharisees. That is what amazes Pilate about the situation. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ did not cease to give such testimony as God had committed to him, not at this time to instruct, for this was not the place, but to confirm and ratify the doctrine to which he had previously borne witness. 
However, we have to note on the one hand that the crime which troubled the Jews the most was that he had stirred up trouble and prevented them from paying tributes to the emperor of Rome. That was really to irritate the governor, a pagan man who was sent there by the emperor. Now it is very certain that our Lord Jesus had declared himself to be king, but not an earthly king. As in fact, we see that when the Jews wish to crown him, he withdraws himself and hides on the mountain. Still further, he dulls the edge of that accusation because it would have been a slander against the gospel if he had perverted the order and law enforcement of the world. For he who has come to call us all to the heavenly kingdom and to make us sharers in it did not wish to abolish earthly kingdoms. For even they are sustained by him and within his power. That is why he said to Pilate specifically that his kingdom is not of this world. Think about it. What would happen if the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ were only earthly? What would we gain by hoping in him when our condition is so miserable in the world? Unbelievers have a much better lot than we do concerning the afflictions which we must endure. For truly the chastisements of God are in effect everywhere, and that those who wish for God do not cease to be subject to many miseries and afflictions. Despite all the difficulty, let us be ready for even more rigid discipline and persecution, for God must begin his chastisements in his house and in his church. Let us imagine we had everything easy in this world and that by means of the Son of God we had here, as it were, a paradise. Yet our life is only a shadow. Our happiness then would be a very brief and frail happiness. So we must surely know and be entirely certain that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is heavenly in order that we may reach the life everlasting to which we are called. That then is how the kingdom of Jesus Christ is perpetual and eternal, for it is not made up of anything which is from this world, here where everything is corrupted. So let us learn to suffer patiently under our adversities, knowing that they do not minish nor impair at all the grace which was acquired for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. For these are aids to our salvation, as Paul shows in Romans 8.28. When we are despised and mocked by the world and suffer many reproaches so that we are hungry and thirsty and we are harassed from all sides, we must remember this shows that God accepts us. That is as if he said to us, look on high, do not set your mind on what is in this world. That is the one thing that we have to see. In fact, it is not without cause that our Lord Jesus wished to add as a confirmation that he was born and came into the world to speak the truth. By this we see that it is a doctrine of importance to know that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not from this world. For if it had been a trivial statement, he might have passed it quickly. But when he pronounced that he had come into the world to speak the truth, it is as if he wished to grab our attention so that each of us should meditate on this in their heart and deeply study this doctrine. That is, we must withdraw from the world and from all creatures in order to come to this heavenly king. And we must seek him in the spiritual benefits which are here spoken to us. When we think of the important facts of the gospel, don't forget this that Jesus Christ came into the world to speak the truth 
so that we can be entirely sure and certain that what he has promised he will bring to pass. When David wishes to be assured against all temptations, he says that the word of God is as silver purified seven times and which has been well tried by fire. So whenever we enter into doubt about the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when we are troubled and harassed, as the devil uses craftiness in order to dishearten us and make us lose courage, let us return to this testimony, that our Lord Jesus appeared in the world to be, to us, a faithful witness. Let us wait today for him to show in effect that it is not in vain that he gave us all these promises because they are infallible. That is what we have to remember. When Pilate says, what is truth? Let us note that it was not, as it were, through a desire to actually know truth that he asked such a question. But it was, as it were, through spite and in mockery. As today, the same sneer is seen in many. When we speak the truth of God, we mean the doctrine of the gospel. St. Paul, in Ephesians 1, attributes to truth this title in order that we may be able to distinguish it from all other knowledge. Sure, if someone gives us an account of something that happened, it is true. But when God calls us to himself, and he wishes to withdraw us from this world in order that we may arrive at the heavenly life, that is a truth which must be put in a higher position. By comparison, all the rest should seem to be nothing. Now let us notice how the world treats the doctrine of the gospel. The wisest men in the world, at least they are treated that way, are so blinded by arrogance that when the gospel is spoken to them, how can this be, they say. We have lived such a long time in the world that you say we only need to know the gospel, yet we have lived a long time and have never heard of it, so how can this be? All of them, then, will be scandalized when it is said to them that the truth of God has been buried and that it is now necessary to guard it closely. We all hear how they scoff at that idea. So it was with Pilate. For as he was sent by the emperor to be his lieutenant in the country of Judea, so it seemed to him that a great wrong was done to him when a truth was spoken of which was unknown to him. And how so? Must we be like idiots? Is there really nothing but lies in us? Can we not discern between good and evil ourselves? And I, who have been appointed to this office, who take the place of the emperor, representing his person, must you reproach me just because I have not known what truth is? This then is the intention of Pilate. He is inflated with pride, like a frog inflated with air. He does not wish to have the reputation of not knowing the difference between good and evil. In fact, we do not see that he waits for the answer of our Lord Jesus, but he throws in this word as if in spite and leaves. Let us be advised. Today, there are many pilots who refuse to be taught in the school of God, thinking they are already wise enough. May we not be hindered from placing ourselves under the obedience of faith in order to accept what our Lord shows and asks of us, knowing that the truth does not grow in our minds, 
when there is only vanity and falsehood there, and we are plunged into darkness until our Lord draws us out of it. Let us recognize that the truth surpasses all our senses and faculties, and God must surely be our master to keep us in it. May we hold this truth so precious that when we have circled heaven and the earth, and it seems that we have learned everything, we may know that it is only smoke. All knowledge will prove to be a mist until we are founded upon the word of he who is certain and immutable. That, then, is what we have to remember. Now it is said, as Pilate was seated upon his throne, his wife commanded him not to condemn Jesus Christ because she had been tormented by many dreams. There is no doubt that God wished to testify to the innocence of Jesus Christ in many ways. It was even by the mouth of Pilate, as we have already mentioned, and as we will see again, yet our Lord Jesus had to be shown righteous and innocent in order that we might know all the better that he suffered the condemnation which was due for us and which we deserved, so that we might always look at our faults and sins in everything that is here told us of the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it says, Pilate desired to be able to acquit our Lord Jesus. For although he had sovereign authority beyond appeal, he was in a foreign country and with rebellious people. Although he had an army in the city, the rebels troubled him. That is why he wished to proceed by subtle and amicable means, so that the people might be appeased. It is then said that he presents what was his custom, at the feast of the Passover, he released a prisoner whom the people desired. He allows them to choose either Jesus Christ or Barabbas, who was, as St. John says, a robber. The other gospel writers say that he was a well-known rebel who had even become a murderer and had stirred up treason and trouble in the city. He is a criminal who should be detestable to everyone. Yet nevertheless, the people cry, let us have Barabbas and let him be pardoned and let Jesus Christ be crucified. It is said that he who justifies the criminal is just as blameworthy before God as he who punishes the innocent. There needs to be a sense of equity in those that God sends to sit upon the throne of justice. For in arming them with his sword, he has not said to them, do whatever seems good to you. God surely wishes that they have a fatherly care over the people and that they would guard against cruelty and abusing their authority. However, evildoers must be punished, and so God commands it. But what do men do? They imagine that they are keeping the spirit of the Passover when they actually are offending God and they are transgressing openly His word. By this we are told not to follow our own ideas when it is a matter of honoring God. Let us not create our own ideas of devotion according to what seems good to us. But let us be satisfied to do what God orders us to do and what he approves of us to do. We even see a similar custom at work today. Men make law today by agreeing that what is considered common between people should be law. 
Though that may seem to be a good idea, God does not fail to condemn it. We see the abuse that customs like this lead to, to the corruption brought about by all of this, that Barabbas was preferred to the Son of God. At first, one might find it strange that our Lord Jesus is rejected and that a robber and murderer is more privileged than he, that he finds favor among men, and that Jesus Christ has received such shame and disgrace. For wasn't it enough that the Son of God was crucified and that he endured a death full of torments? For death by the cross was the punishment of bandits. It was not like the gallows would be today, but like the wheel. Wasn't it enough that Jesus Christ was whipped and spat upon in the face? To kill him through such a shameful method plunges him into the depths of dishonor. If we judge by our own senses and we do not look beyond what we see, surely we will be confused by it all. But we must raise our eyes higher by faith and come to what we have previously mentioned, namely that God governs all this by his counsel. Let us contemplate this immutable decree of God that to better humble us, he will that his son be plunged into complete dishonor and that he be put even below all the criminals of the world. For he was crucified between two robbers, as we see later. That is what we have to see when Barabbas is set free and Jesus Christ is seen as the most detestable man in the world. Pilate even after all that, tries to make our Lord Jesus escape. But by a devilish method, he whips him, that was then called chastise, and wishes to release him after having chastised him, as if he were one who had committed some fault. By this he pretended to quiet the people. Now, if our Lord Jesus had escaped, what would have become of the gospel? What would have become of the salvation of the world? For this correction, as Pilate called it, might forever have been a mark of shame. As if the gospel had been a wicked doctrine since the judge of the country condemned it, and our Lord Jesus in his person would have been entirely rejected. Meanwhile, we would have perished since there was no other means to reconcile us to God except by the death of his only Son. This is the overture of life the death of our Lord Jesus. Was it the devil here trying to keep the righteous death from occurring? Yet who drove the priests and their kind to pursue Jesus Christ to death, unless it was the devil? It is true, for he works as it were like a madman. We see that God often sends a spirit of disturbance and frenzy upon all wicked men so that they contradict themselves. They are like waves of the sea which beat upon one another. So the devil was carried away when he tried to destroy the Lord Jesus on the one hand and then on the other wished to prevent the redemption of mankind. But God worked through the situation so that the innocence of his son might have a witness through the very mouth of the judge himself. However, he also willed nevertheless that he should die in order to make the sacrifice for our salvation and redemption. God has only a single and simple will, but it is admirable to us, and he has such strange ways of proceeding that we must bow our heads in awe, and yet recognize that our Lord Jesus suffered, not at all according to the desire of men, 
but because we had to have such an example of the infinite love of our God. And Jesus Christ had to declare it to us to show how precious our souls are to him and how dear is the salvation of them to him. Let us then remember all these things. Besides, it is said at the end by St. John, although Jesus Christ had been whipped, the people cried out all the more that he be put to death. Now Pilate questions him again. Indeed, because he had heard that Jesus made himself the Son of God and this word shocked him, and he is more frightened by it than before, that is why he asks him, Where are you from? When Jesus Christ does not answer at all, Do you not know, he said to him, that I have the power to release you or to condemn you? Now here we see why the Jews bring such an accusation against our Lord Jesus Christ. It is true, the crime which could better move the governor of the country was attributed to himself, kingdom and dominion. But when they see that their malice is discovered, and that Pilate well understands that they are only trumped up lies, they say, we have the law by which he has to die. For that privilege had been reserved for them in order that they might not have any religious disputes. For the Romans, who were profane people and who served their idols only through ceremony, wished to maintain their empire by means of letting each one do according to his own religion. So when they say, he made himself the son of God and thereby he blasphemed, it is true that if our Lord Jesus had not been the redeemer of the world, it would have rendered him subject to the death penalty to make himself the only son of God. For we are all children of God when he has adopted us through his grace. That is the common way of speaking of it in Holy Scripture. Those who have received some special grace are called sons of God, and in other places they are called princes and magistrates. With greater understanding, then, Jesus Christ being supremely anointed with graces and powers by the Holy Spirit might well be called the Son of God. But if he had not been Redeemer of the world at all and still called himself only Son of God, that would truly have been a mortal crime. But how could the Jews accuse him of that? It is, first of all, by ignorance of the Scripture. They do not know that he who would be the Redeemer would be the living God manifested. And since they did not have the real understanding of Scripture, they were not trained in it, but instead were made brutish by their apathy. That is why they are so bold as to dare to condemn Jesus Christ. Now, here we see a similar boldness in all ignorant people. Today, when they cry, heretic, it is not that the proof is in hand, but that the most block-headed people are driven by such a rage in their wish to be zealots to honor God, and they don't know why or how. Further, it is necessary to investigate whether Jesus Christ was the Messiah or not, but the Jews rejected him without making any investigation. Let us learn by that. If we wish to have a zeal which God approves, we must be ruled by true knowledge and be taught by his word. For we may be able to skim the surface, but it will only be like the wild arguments of Satan if we do not speak as scholars of God's truth. 
because he is the only competent judge and he reserves to himself the office of showing us what is his will. Since it is like this, let us follow the word of God with simplicity and let us also be peaceful even in our zeal. But when it is said that Pilate feared more than ever to hear the Son of God's name spoken, here we see in the poor pagan some awareness of religion. It moves him and stings him and speaks to his conscience, and now he does not know which way to turn. There stands Jesus Christ entirely disfigured and with the marks of the whipping still upon him. He had previously suffered so much reproach and disgrace, so many drops of spit were on him, so many blows on the head which had been given to him in the house of Caiaphas. Briefly, here is a man who is despised and rejected by everyone. Yet, nevertheless, the name of God moves Pontius Pilate and arouses in him fright and astonishment. What does it say of us when we behave like savage beasts instead? When one wishes to speak to us of God, we often react with far less reverence and fear than Pilate did. His example will be used to condemn some of us. We see today mockers, people full of the devil. If one proposes to them, look what God shows us, and one declares to them his word, but one thing is as good as another to them. They plug up their ears they blindfold their eyes. They are entirely preoccupied by their natural senses. And they are so proud that they would not even consider giving anyone an audience. For they're satisfied just as they are. We have ordained it this way, they say, and so it must be done this way. Oh, really? However, here is Pilate, who had never heard a single word of the doctrine of God. Even the law was to him nothing so that everything that the Jews do he considers to be some nonsense. Pilate adores his idols, yet the name God affects him. He is held back when it is spoken of. Is it on account of some majesty or some pomp which he sees in the person of the beaten Jesus Christ? Not at all. It is only the name God which draws him to reverence. How much more will some people be condemned by this fear of Pilate when they choose to follow their own path, even though the name of God is spoken to them? And not only as a word in passing, but offerings to teach them and to show them with the finger the testimonies of Scripture. If they condescend neither to think about nor to apply themselves with any diligence, isn't it a sign the devil possesses them entirely? Must they be unaware that they are like monsters who have abolished every ounce of religion and that they have made themselves obstinate against God? Are they trying to defy all of nature? Though this may all be, on the contrary, we also see that all the fears which men have and all sentiment and apprehension they have to honor God will be only a flash of lightning which passes before their eyes and immediately vanishes. For how did Pilate fear God? We see that it does not grip him truly. This is how all those who are not governed by the Spirit of God will have on one hand some fears by which they are seized, so that they will humble themselves for a time before God. 
but they do not cease to raise their horns. They will then forget and dull their consciences to do evil. As we see in Pharaoh, sometimes he is quite astonished. And pray to God for me, he says. And when he sees the power of God so apparent, oh, it is the finger of God, he says. One must be subject to him. But soon after, he is worse than before. So it is with Pilate. This warns us not to have any fears of God that are like gusts of wind, but to have a good root which remains firm in our hearts. For how is it that Pilate feared God? It is only to render him more inexcusable. All the scruples then which condemners of God and all wicked men have, these are to be regarded as summonses which God issues to take away from them every excuse of ignorance. But then they slacken the reins. They throw themselves into sin with abandon, and so they are in no ways held back, as we see in Pilate. At the beginning, he is quite astonished, but soon afterwards, he goes back to his natural self. And do you not know, he says to Jesus Christ, that I have power to release you or condemn you? Here, let us note, first of all, even if he had been a robber, all the same, he would have not been able to move a finger unless God gave him the power. How is it then that Pilate dares to assume such unbounded liberty as to condemn and set free according to his desire and by virtue of his position? It would be better that the jails be released of all robbers and that they had liberty to exercise their cruelty upon the open roads than for people like Pilate to sit on such an honorable throne. People who take pleasure in power without thinking of their consciences They throw the world into complete confusion. Here we see, as I have shown, that there was no living root in Pilate, only a gust of wind. So then, let us learn to fear God so that there may be a firm constancy in us to walk in His obedience and that we may fight virtuously against everything that could turn us aside. However, there is also to consider how the glory which Pilate attributes to himself is nevertheless a great shame upon him. For his enemies could have reproached him no worse than this, namely, that he wishes to have no discrimination between good and evil. God puts in them such a sense of confusion that they boast of their iniquities in order to render themselves detestable both in heaven and on earth. What is to be done? Let us learn to glory in the good, and let us consider what is lawful for us. For those who glory in their greatness, it is certain that they provoke God. For they have often acquired their riches and their power by unlawful means, by force, by cruelty, and all kinds of extortion. When they glory in that, it is, as it were, by defying God. He who has plundered everyone will say, I have done well. But God sees the blood of poor people which he has sucked. He will say, I have acquired it. And how? By frauds, wicked practices, pillaging, gobbling up another and having perverted all good order. Maybe another gets there through ambition and unlawful means and will have arrived at some dignified title and he wishes to be held in awe. This is all defies God. 
Let us learn then, as I have already said, to glory in what God approves. It is true that although there might be some good in us, it is not lawful to usurp the praise which God reserves for himself, on account of which we must pay him homage, just as he has given us everything. It is not proper then here to glory in ourselves, as if what God gives belongs to us, But I say we must glory only in that it pleased God to adopt us for His children. And just as He gives us grace to walk in fear of Him, and He gives us power to abstain from evil, in these things we must glory. Then, if we are little and contemptible according to the world, let us pray that He may give us patience, and that we may prefer to be in a humble state rather than to be raised and enjoy ourselves like worldly people do. They enjoy themselves in such a way that nothing can restrain them. This, in summary, is how we have to glory, that is, that we may not wish to be more than God allows us, and that we may despise everything he disapproves of. Even if the world may applaud those who exercise tyranny and who practice every evil, let us leave then easily and willingly all such worldly glories, not seeking anything else except to be recognized and confessed before God as his children. That, in summary, is what we still have to remember. In conclusion, it is said, Pilate, seeing that he was gaining nothing and that the tumult among the people was increasing, washes his hands and says, I am innocent of the blood of this man. We have already declared that the innocence of our Lord Jesus had to be proven and that it was testified by the mouth of the judge himself. For when it is said that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and that he was condemned, it is not enough to have heard the account. But we must be fully aware that Jesus Christ not only is innocent, but that he is the fountain of all holiness and perfection. Why then is he condemned? There are two different reasons, it seems. It is said that he is the Lamb of God without a spot. Since he is the Lamb of God, he must be condemned for the sacrifice. The word lamb implies that he is to be offered. And what does the law pronounce of sacrifices? That they stand in for sins and curses. That is why it is said that our Lord Jesus was accursed for our sake. That is, he received the curse which was due to our sins. This then is why he is condemned, since God appointed him as a lamb which must be offered in sacrifice. But also it had to be known that he was without any blemish and his purity had to be clear to our eyes. This was in order that we might understand our sins as far as we have known that Jesus Christ is the mirror of all perfection and that we might enter into examination of our own faults to be displeased with them, and to recognize the condemnation which was prepared for us if we had not been delivered by him. Now when Pilate took the basin and the water to wash his hands, it was far too frivolous a ceremony, as if he could be acquitted before God by that. But it was not to make his excuse before God, when he tried to appease the fury of the people. For he did not protest before God that he was innocent, but he only said to the people, look to yourselves, as for me, I'm innocent. As if he said, you forced me to do this. 
But all that, as I have said, is not to exercise him, for he is not performing his office of judge. For he should rather die a hundred times than to neglect to perform his office properly as a judge. When he saw all the troubles of the world, he should have had the magnanimity to do what he knew to be good and just. But when he sees the people to be so inflamed, he lets himself get carried away. However, it had to be like this, cursed as it was, so that he testifies to the innocence of our Lord Jesus Christ, that from his own mouth he justifies him. Nevertheless, that does not excuse him from the condemnation, but through his word rests our consolation. For we know that if we should be brought before God today to appear before his throne, it would not be to receive condemnation. Instead, the fact that the blood of our Lord Jesus was spilled is the true purging of our souls. He receives us as pure and clean. Now we see the response from the Jews. For they are completely led by Satan as they say, His blood be upon us and upon all our children. Now they are the heritage of God, the people elected and chosen from all the nations of the earth. And yet they renounce this dignity and all the promises of salvation, this sacred alliance which God has established with their line. They are then deprived of all the benefits that God had previously distributed to them. And the blood of our Lord Jesus had to fall upon them as he once said to them, Your iniquity must come to the full. And the blood of the martyrs from Abel the righteous, even to Zacharias the son of Bacharias, who was murdered not long ago, must be brought upon you. And you must see that you were always the murderers of the prophets. And by this means you have fought against God and against his word. Matthew 23, Luke 11, 2 Chronicles 36. That is how the blood of our Lord Jesus, which should be the salvation of all the world, and especially of the Jews, cried vengeance against them. But now let us learn to look deep inside ourselves and to pray to God that it may come upon us in another way, both upon us and in particular upon our children. Namely, may we be washed and cleansed, knowing that we are abominable before God on account of our own sins, until we are washed and we suffer the blood which was once poured out for our redemption to come upon us. And that thereby we are sprinkled by the power of the Holy Spirit, First Peter 1, and we may be careful not to reject the grace which was offered to us by God. May we then, today, be disposed to receive the purging of our Lord Jesus Christ, which cannot be apprehended except by faith. May we pray to God that we may not have received this washing in vain, but from day to day may we be purified from all our blemishes. May it please our God to make the most of this purity which was acquired by our Lord Jesus Christ until we have arrived in His kingdom, where we will be freed from all corruption of our vices. Now we will bow in humble reverence before the majesty of our God. 
John uh, had this line, you could have so many lines in this sermon, I think are really good, but there was this one part where he goes, even while Israel is rejecting this man, he's like, but I had Pilate say, this is your king in the middle of it. It's something I never really noticed before in the a crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But he's like, look, even as he's going to the cross, Jesus, God cannot help but have Jesus's kingship, his his glory, his goodness recognized even by the Gentile ruler Pilate. And while the crowd is yelling, you know, we want Caesar, Pilate is over there going, but he's the king of the Jews, right? Like this is Jesus is your king. And and the way Calvin just goes like, even all the way through it, God is orchestrating what is happening just to perfection. It really, I don't know why, but and maybe that wasn't the part that stood out to you. But for me, that was the part that I was like, wow, that's true. Like there was no part of this crucifixion story where Jesus wasn't both in some ways being mocked mercilessly, but on the other side, he wasn't also just getting glory. Like there was no denying they knew what they were doing all the way through. And it's just a powerful moment where again, even as Jesus was going to the cross, Pilate is going, this is basically, you know, this is the king though, right? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Backel. Man, Troy, name a, a name that is more, there are few people more synonymous with Revived Thoughts than Ed Backel. Uh, excellent narrator, and we are happy that uh, he likes being a part of our show. Yeah, we're very grateful to Ed Backel. We always say if you have not listened to sermons by him, he's amazing. I, I don't. I don't know what we do without him. He's definitely one of the best. I, the Lord has sent us so many amazing speakers, and I, I could list a bunch of other names as well. But we've been really grateful. Ed has been with Pastor Ed has been with us uh, for a very long time. We've never met like he's somebody who just joined the show and said, "Hey, I like what you're doing. Can I read sermons with you?" And and he has just been a huge godsend for years now, just putting out these really high quality sermons for us to be able to use here. And we're really grateful for him. If you haven't listened to some of the other episodes, I encourage you to check out. Uh, Christmas Evans was one of the first ones he did with us, but there, he's done several of them with us, and they're all really good. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. <laughs>